1 Corinthians. That's where we're going to have our New Testament reading. We've been reading one chapter a week, and we are on number 14. So guess how many weeks we've been reading? 14 weeks. There you are. 14 weeks, and that's the whole length of our evening service. We're, we're 14 weeks in. Uh, so turn there with me. We'll read all these verses here. A lot of stuff going on in this church in Corinth for us to be instructed by. Short chapter last week, long chapter this week. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if your tongue, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, and my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. <clears throat> I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church... I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, be not children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? All pretty clear. <laughs> but if all prophecy and an unbeliever, but if all prophesy, rather, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Well then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only one, or two at the most, or three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. 
But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh in or let others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. They should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for women to speak in church. Or, what is, or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the th that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Let me just give a couple of comments on that chapter because it's long and it's extensive, and that's the weird stuff. That's why he's speaking in tongues. What do you think of when you think of that? You think of Pentecostals down the street, don't you? You think of Ibada Yamaha, Sebada Kawasaki, Ibada Yamaha, So let's just change these words to where it makes sense in our minds. If you change prophesy to preach, and if you change tongues to languages, now what do you get? Now, when you see that, you go, oh. And now we're not changing that arbitrarily because prophets, are, we're going to see here in a minute when we call Jesus the prophet, the great prophet, their, their main job is to just clearly speak what God has said. That's what prophets do. Occasionally, they'll tell something that's coming in the future, but most of the time, they don't even know what they're saying about the future. When they say, from you, Bethlehem, small among Judah, a Savior will come, they're writing that down, but they might not even understand that. They're just told to say that. Most of what they do is foretelling, not foretelling. So what we have here, Paul's saying, here's what's happening in your church, Corinth. You got people all, all popping up in all corners of the room and just talking in foreign languages. You got somebody babbling Italian over there. You got somebody yelling in French over there. You got somebody speaking Swahili over here. And it's chaos. Nobody knows what's going on because not everybody speaks those languages. Because that's what tongues, Greek, is the word glossolalia, which is mean, where we get our word glossary. And what are glossaries full of? words that you can read and i can read and we can understand so it's not nonsense it's languages because when the pro when the when the apostles speak in tongues in acts 2 what happens they all go hey how do you know my language because they, they can hear and understand so it's a language so you have people speaking uh, jumping up and preaching all over the place one and then two they're doing in other languages and corinth is this multicultural central hub uh shipping port in the mediterranean sea so that would be like in New York or even in Dallas and Houston. You've got all these language groups spoken. So like, hey, wait, if you Paul says and you're speaking in a foreign language and nobody is translating it, somebody comes in and goes, you guys are not, huh, I don't know this language. I've never even heard of this language. But if you're just speaking, if you're just preaching in, in the common language, then they get it. They're not confused. They understand. So this is an, a call to orderly worship and this concept or in dealing with these two gifts to preach and to prophesy and in a church that's overly valued the supernatural gift the overly valued to the extent to where that's what we all want we want to be better and paul's like that those gifts are great they're from the holy spirit but i'd rather preach one five words coherently 
than 10,000 words in a language that I never learned but now can speak, but nobody else knows, so it's worthless. That's what he's instructing them in, in that. So, let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to think about Christ this evening, and we, we intend to. So we ask that you would guide our, our thinking, my words, Lord, that we would approach with the deepest reverence, not with presumption, but also not with servile fear, but with holy boldness. We know that you're beyond the grasp of our understanding, but we know that you're not beyond the, the grasp of our love. We know that we can love you. We know that we are loved by you. We know that you are supremely lovely and good and perfect. And we, when we think about Christ, it just it, it melts us, his love for us, that he would be our elder brother, that he would call us bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, that we would be his bride, that we are to be wed to, that he died for us, he rose for us, that he would call us mine, and we would be able to say the same to him. Lord, we, we sit and think of that. We, we know that we have so much to confess that our love is often cold, icy, towards your son. We ask that his love would warm us, that his light would enliven us, and that we would come uh, confidently in your presence, knowing that you can make us fruitful by your own love and Christ's love for us. So, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would come to us. Spirit, we'd ask that you'd rest on us, educate us, enlighten us. And Father, we ask that you would look on us in mercy for the sake of your well-beloved Son. Because it's only in his name that we can pray, and we joyfully do so. Amen. All right. Well, this evening, we've been, last couple weeks, we've been getting some three-first on questions. Now we got more than that. We're going to do 22 through 26. They all connect, and we're not keeping you here any longer. Don't worry. But they all connect. We got into last week a little bit of, Scott, did you turn this light off? How come? You didn't like it? <laughs> Is it making my head look shiny? <laughs> so you're looking now for me. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if that light was doing that. I think that's just the, the glory. <laughs> I looked up and it was off. Okay. All right. Back to what we were doing. Last week we were doing, we were dealing with sin, and then we moved, like our depravity, our fall, in Adam's fall, we sinned all, but then we move to there's a redeemer. And then now we begin this stretch to this evening and then, and then a little bit next week about who is the redeemer? Who is Christ? Who is this one? So we looked at last week, we kind of ended on just touching on his, the hypostatic union. Truly God, truly man. And question number 21, and now we're going to get into, okay, how did he become truly man? And what does it mean that he held that role truly as man and this threefold office that we're going to look at and we're going to explain a little bit but let's look at question 22 question 22 says this how did christ being the son of god become man that's a fair question if you're the son of god like peter says in matthew 16 how do you become man well here's the answer christ the son of god became man this way by taking to himself a true body Secondly, and a reasonable soul. Thirdly, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her. And then fourthly, yet without sin. 
So that's how, that's the manner in which he became truly man. Now we're going to break those down. The first is a true body. At the beginning of the Reformation in the 1500s, you kind of have this, the magisterial reformers, that's Martin Luther, that's John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, and then you have um, the crazies. As far as they were just like, yeah, let's stick it to the man. They weren't really like, yeah, we're, this theology is right. We want to reform the church. They're like, let's burn it down. They're the radical re reformation. And they're, they're called the Anabaptists in most places. Now, they believe some stuff that, that Calvin and Luther and Zwingli and those guys that we look back to and we follow our lineage through, they, they had some beliefs that we couldn't go with, that, that, that the reformers couldn't go with. And one of them was, well, what Jesus had was celestial flesh. So his flesh was, it looked like ours. I mean, it was, you couldn't tell if you put it under a microscope, but it was heavenly. It was different than, than our flesh is. And we have to reject that because then that's not really a human. Jesus cannot be Clark Kent. I use this illustration all the time. Stole it from Tommy Nelson because I just can't think of anything better because it's, it just so quickly communicates it. What happens if you walk into the Daily Planet newspaper building and you shoot Clark Kent at his desk? What's it going to do with that bullet? Is it going to go through? Is it going to bounce off? It's going to bounce off, right? Because he's posing as a man, right? He puts the glasses on, and now nobody can tell that for however many decades Superman ran. Like, oh, that's you? He's in there, but if you walked in and he got in a fight in the office, somebody just punches him. Hey, you little nerd. they will break his hand on his jaw. Because he's posing. He's not really one of us. He's an alien. Jesus is not like that. You know, we see that throughout the scriptures in kind of minute ways. You ever thought about that? that when Jesus was thirsty when he sat at the well. Woman at the well. He needs the water at the bottom. Or then when he gets in the boat and the storm's going, what's he doing at the back? He's asleep. I mean, it's God has to sleep. I mean, it's, when you start thinking about it, it bends your brain, but he's really sleeping. He's actually tired in the back of the boat. He's not just sticking it to the disciples, making them sweat a little bit. So he has to be really, he's a real flesh, real blood, real bone, real ligaments, real organs, real needs to sleep and to eat and to drink water and to rest. A real body, true body. We have to hold to that. Otherwise, we move out of orthodoxy. And Philippians 2, 5 and through 8, is where we go for that. We're not, not going to read that. we got more verses to get to here in a minute. But that's but write that down. Philippians 2, 5, and 8 is this condensed humanity of Christ. The second thing the question says is that he had a reasonable soul. Reasonable, when we say reasonable, what we mean is fair. Right? Well, that's a reasonable price for that thing on Craigslist. But reasonable in the catechism is talking about able to reason. A, a true soul that's reasoning and functioning like, like our soul does, right? Like this, it's the life in us that, that are you, like when we, when we see the, the tragic stories of loved ones who are, who are kept alive on certain apparatuses in, the, in hospitals that they're, but their soul seems to be just gone and you're just forcing their body to stay alive. So it's a reasonable soul is what he has to take on. And why does he have to take that on? I said this last week. What he doesn't assume, he cannot redeem. And do we need our souls redeemed from the Redeemer? Absolutely we do. That's what we talk about. Like we're going we're gonna to save souls. We want souls to be saved. We want to see souls in heaven. That word. So he's got to take that on in order for it to be redeemed in us. 
It's got to be a real soul. So we can't be a hologram. That he's just like, well, I'm really God, and I'm just going to put up this hologram around me that looks human. No, it's got to be a real soul. And it can't just be only divine and not take on our soul because that's what we need to be redeemed. Not just our bodies, our souls. The third thing that he brought up, or the catechism brought up, was the virgin birth. Now, we, we take it for granted, virgin birth, and we, we sing it at Christmas. Mr. Mr. John Virgin, round John Virgin, he's a fat guy, last name Virgin. I remember reading that as a, a kid one time that some kid thought that that's who they were singing about, was a big, overweight man named Round John Virgin. Like he, was, he was a big guy. But we sing about it at Christmas all the time. But have you, what if somebody put it to you and say, hey, I just can't get on board with that doctrine, but I still, I still consider myself a Christian. You've you got to tell that person, if you're not on board with the virgin birth, then you can't consider yourself a Christian. It's not a negotiable. And it's not just because we want to make sure we keep Christmas cool or keep Christ in Christmas. It's not because of anything like that. It's because if he's not born of a virgin. Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelion, the first mention of the gospel, that you will be crushed, serpent, by one born of the seed of the woman. And the seed, the, so where it says, between your offspring and your, her offspring, it's your seed and her seed, and it's singular in the Hebrew. So, but also seed, I don't do great in biology in school, but... I remember this, women do not have that, biologically. They have eggs. So then how is this going to happen? Well, we need one who doesn't have Adam as his father. One who can be born actually sinless. Because if he's born of the seed of man, of Adam, then he can't do anything for us. He's in the deep of trouble as we are. So the virgin birth cannot be negotiated. It cannot be taken away we need one born of the seed of the woman like luke that's why luke spends so much time in chapters one and two explaining this and having the conversation with mary and gabriel this is a non-negotiable and then lastly it said in that question he lives a sinless life now this is important have you ever stopped and thought well why did jesus have to live all the way as an adult i mean what's he doing between you know year two he's two years old after the magi get to him but then from two to 30 28 years What's he doing? Why, why did he have to do that? I mean, how many people, if you, if you really want to think panicky, died between him being two years old and 30 years old and then eventually 33 and dying? Why did he have to do all that? Couldn't he, just, couldn't he have just died in Herod's big purge? He wants to kill all the babies. Couldn't he have just done that and that would have paid for us? No, he's got to live a sinless life. He's got to fulfill all righteousness. And he's continuing to do that right now, his active obedience. He passively obeys on the cross by just being put to death, but he actively keeps every law. That's why he's able to say to the Pharisees, what law have I broken? What have I done wrong? Point it out to me. Because when they try to pin him on the Sabbath so many times, he keeps answering them with Bible, showing them that he hasn't broken the Sabbath. In fact, he's kept the Sabbath. So that's why he has to live this sinless life. And that's why we can't negotiate that either. He has to live a sinless life. And for a frame of reference, just read the four Gospels. So. Now, we're going to get into digging into some verses here. The question number th 23 says this. Okay, so if that's how he becomes man, 
then it just jumps in to these offices that Christ executes as Redeemer. I'm going to explain them. Let me read you the answer. So it says, what offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? Christ as our Redeemer, as the answer says, executes the office of prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. So meaning while he's on earth and then as in heaven. Now, have you ever heard that? Prophet, priest, and king? You know, I never heard it until seminary. And it seemed arbitrary to me. Then nobody really, even at seminary, they didn't sit down and explain it to me. I was like, well, why not, you know, why not shepherd, friend, and warrior? Why not, in our day, buddy, bro, and homeboy? I mean, we got t-shirts of those. Well, why? It seems like it seems arbitrary, but it's not. These offices that we attribute to Christ, the significance lies in the Old Testament. Is Jesus present in the Old Testament? Amen. He is. And not just as the angel of the Lord that talks to Manoah, you know, Samson's dad has that conversation, or Gideon has a conversation with him, or Abraham, when he's one of the three men that come and talk to Abraham about the destruction that's going to come down upon Sodom and Gomorrah and the blessing of Isaac that's going to come. Not just those moments, because isn't he God? And hasn't he always been God? Well, if that's the case, then he's there writing the Old Testament, inspiring the written word of the Old Testament. So he's all over the Old Testament. That's what John 1, 1 means. That means that he wrote it. So then you go to the Old Testament and think that's where the story begins. And then in what ways did God represent himself to us? In the Old Testament, the Old Covenant um, economy, for lack of a better word, how did God see to it that what he wanted done was carried out? He enlisted people, right? Specifically men to in certain offices. That I want you to make sure that my word is taught, that it's enforced, that my people are, are protected and cared for, that somebody mediates between me and them. And that's what prophets, priests, and kings do. And think about who are the most significant figures in the Old Testament outside of the patriarchs. Prophets, priests, and kings, right? Moses is a prophet, right? And prophet like no other, they say. And he mediates between the people and God, right? God's trying to kill them all at the mount, and he goes, no, 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 don't do it. And then another time, he's like, okay, yeah, do it. And then, and then he, God's like, no, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do it this time. So he mediates between the people. Aaron, his son. Ezra is a priest. So we see these priestly figures as well, that this whole priesthood is set up. You, one tribe, I have 12 tribes, 12 families in my people. One of you has nothing to do with farming, with agriculture, with providing for yourselves. All you do is run the worship all day and all night. And then the kings, right? We think of David as, you know, the, the city of David, the son of David, all the way down. Now, most of the kings are bad, and there's plenty of deceit, deceitful prophets, and most of the priests end up being pretty bad, except for some standouts like Eliezer, Phineas, Ezra, a few others. So this is Jesus coming in, fulfilling these things, preaching as a prophet, mediating as a priest, I mean, going before God and the people, and then ruling as a king. He has to fulfill those offices because that's how God governed, ruled, loved, and blessed, provided for his people in the Old Testament. And we need that all to coalesce into one. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17 and 18, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Law and the prophets is Jesus' way of saying the Old Testament. 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus says, don't think I came to get rid of it. And sometimes we treat the Bible as if he did. Right? Like none of it matters until Jesus hits the scene. So yeah, you can read that stuff if you want, but it doesn't do good until like over halfway through. Jesus said, I didn't abolish any of that stuff. I came to fulfill it. To, and none of it's going to go away until all is fulfilled. An iota, that, uh, we, we, when we say iota, we mean something small. That's actually a Greek letter. And it is the, the smallest letter. I mean, it's just like a flick of a pen. It's like an I with no dot over it, lowercase I with no dot. It's impossible to write it legibly with your own hands. But he says, none of it is going to go away until I fulfill it all, as this prophet, priest, and king. So let's look at these offices. First one is prophet. How does Christ execute the office of a prophet? Here's the answer. Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. That's preaching. By proclaiming, by saying out loud the truth, the will of God for our salvation. Do, when we think of Jesus, we don't often think of him as a preacher. But that's the first thing that he does in his public ministry at age 30 when he comes from the baptism of John. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming, that's Caruso, preaching, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Matthew records it in chapter 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what he's preaching. And we don't often talk about the Jesus that says, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, most often we think of Jesus as, you know, sitting with the little kids, and he has long, flowing blonde hair and blue eyes, and, and he's just real sweet and nice. But the first thing that he does... Jesus came preaching, began to preach, repent, kingdom of, a word that's very, fallen out of uh, vogue for us in the church today. Nevertheless, it's one of the first that Jesus says publicly, kingdom of heaven is here. And as a prophet, this is what prophets mostly did, did they not? What is Elijah telling the people to do? Stop worshiping Baal. Stop worshiping Ashtaroth. Worship the one true God. Repent. How long in the limp between both of them? That's what Isaiah's doing. That's what Jeremiah's doing. The 12 minor prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. I mean, on the list, that's the majority of what they're saying. So it's not foretelling, like what's going to happen in the future, mostly what they're doing. It's foretelling. God has spoken, and you are not following. Repent and believe and be saved. And that's what he does as our preacher. That the truth of the gospel has to be preached first order for souls to be saved so he comes preaching and then he comes as the priest the mediator the sacrifice then he's established as king but the first thing that has to happen is the preaching of the word we all know john or romans 10 13 and following for everyone who calls upon the name of the lord will be saved right everybody knows that but the verse goes on in verse 14 well how will they call on him in whom they not believe and how are they to believe in him who they never heard and how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? We love verse 13, but then Paul goes on, let's work this system all the way backwards. How are they going to be believe if they never heard? How are they going to hear if no one preaches? And how, are we, they, how is a preacher going to go unless somebody funds it and sends them? How is that going to happen? 
So Jesus comes preaching first for that reason. Now, question 25, okay, you got, he's preaching now, but, but that's not enough because we've had plenty of prophets. John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet. We've had lots of really good ones. And when Jesus is asking his disciples, who do people say that I am, what do they say? What do they say? Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you are the capital P prophet from Deuteronomy 18. But they also they all think he's a prophet, but he's got more work to do as a priest. And what's interesting is that he's not from the family of the priests. Who are the priests? What tribe are they from? Levi. And then what tribe is Jesus from? Judah. So Hebrews is going to have to explain that. And we'll get to that here in a minute. But how does he get to be a priest? So how does he execute the office of a priest? Here's the answer. Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself, a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God to make con and making continual intercession for us. The major role of an Old Testament priest was to intercede, to mediate for the people between them and God. Sinners holy God, a mediator, a go-between. And when you read the Old Testament, and particularly the sacrificial system, what you realize is, is that priests were basically just butchers. When you start outlining it all out, all they do is kill animals all day long. You got this sacrifice, you got a grain offering, you got a wave offering, you got a peace offering, you got a sin offering, you got a burnt offering, you got ceremonial offerings, you got all these holy days that come around every year. You got the Day of Atonement, which is a massive day where you're doing lots of sacrifices before the one goat. I mean, that guy is neck deep in blood and has to keep a sharp knife because every time somebody sins, they got to come. They're coming every day. That's all he does. Hebrews talks about that. They Every day, that's all they do is kill animals and burn them on this altar. And what we see here is that he offers up himself as a sacrifice. This is Hebrews picks up on this. We'll read chapter 9 here in a minute. Is that he, he's the lamb and the priest at the same time. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14 talks about this. Well, the whole book of Hebrews talks about it a ton. That, that is the book about Jesus as our high priest. But verse 11 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all to the holy places. Let me pause right there. So Christ, when he's our high priest, he doesn't go into the temple that Solomon built. He doesn't go into the temple that uh, Herod rebuilt or the tabernacle that Moses was hauling around in the desert. He goes into the real one, the real, the heavenly temple. But a priest couldn't go into the temple, into the Holy of Holies on his own. Before Aaron could go in on behalf of everybody else, he had to make a sacrifice for himself and purify himself. And then he could go in. But what does it say? He keeps reading. Look at this. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if... The blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of flesh. That's verse 13 saying, if that's what it took for you to be sanctified, to made holy, to made clean, to be paid for. Back then, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. 
and purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So Jesus would go in, I have to make a sacrifice for myself. I am the sacrifice. He's not carrying in something else. He's going in all on his own as both. And he does it, we don't have time to dig into it, but he does it once for all. That's, that's a phrase throughout Hebrews you'd be wise to go and mark. Once for all, or once, or only once, over and over about his sacrifice. That's our big problem as Protestants protesting against Catholicism about communion. Which is why we don't call it the Mass, and why we're even afraid to call it the Eucharist, which is just Latin for good meal. Like, it's, it's okay to use that word, but the Catholics have it, and we don't want it. Because what they're saying is that Jesus needs to be crucified afresh for you. He, he, we pulled him down, they won't say it like this, but that's what they're doing, off the throne to die again today. Have you noticed that all Catholic crosses, he's still, he's still on it? You know why that is? Because he's still making the sacrifice. Our crosses are empty because he paid it all, once for all, an eternal sacrifice not a repetitive one so that's the first thing he does as priest second thing he does is reconcile us to god hebrews 2 17 therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of god to make propitiation for the sins of the people he's got to bring us together he's got to reconcile us to reconcile us Something has been broken, we need reconciliation, and that happens through a big word there, propitiation. Don't be scared of that word. All that word means is the placating of the wrath of a deity. That's what it would take for us and God to be reconciled. His wrath has to be placated, has to be made right. And Jesus does that. He brings together the two estranged parties. The offended, and one was the offender. We're the offender, God's the offended. And Christ reconciles us by paying the debt by being the propitiation for us and then thirdly as priest he does intercession so priests were to be praying for the people which is again where we're not, we're not beating on catholics but this is why we don't say i don't need to go into the confessional booth and pray to you so that you can intercede for me i have christ interceding for me hebrews seven twenty five. consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since, because, he always lives to make intercession for them. He's all, Christ is alive right now. He is always making intercession for us, praying for us in a way no priest ever could. We don't need another mediator. We don't need another interceder. We have Christ. Now, certainly we can pray for one another, intercede for one another, but we have Jesus interceding with, for us always, every tick of the clock, as one of my professors said, is Jesus is praying for me. Jesus is praying for me. Jesus is praying for me. Always interceding for us in a way no priest ever could. And then lastly, the office of a king. King Jesus. How does Christ execute that office? Christ executes the office of a king in, number one, subduing us to himself. Number two, ruling and defending us. And number three, in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies the first one is maybe the one we like the least he has to subdue us that sounds like uh, i like it when he woos me that makes me feel like i'm this desirable thing that he wants hey come be with me but but the westminster confession is like a uh, boxing with no gloves on it's just there it is pow subdues you why 
because of Romans 10, 5.10 is true. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. We were enemies of God. So what does a king do to enemies? Subdues them. That's what the Roman Empire did, right? They go all over conquering, and they occupy Israel in the time of Jesus. They've subdued you. Now you're with us. You use our money. You use our language, and you listen to our leaders. You can have your own leaders you know, underneath us if you want, but you are under us. You're subdued. We needed that because this is what we were. Titus 3.3. 3. Paul describes the, the state of people before being converted in Titus 3.3 3 by saying, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Does that sound like a person you could woo? You could say, come on over here. Let's, you know, I'll be nice. Like that, that's a person that needs to be subdued, held down, and changed. That's what we were. A king must first subdue a people before he can defend them. You must, you must submit. The word we hate the most submit to me bow the knee to me isn't that what jesus or god says of jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess what we're in the business of doing here as his church is convincing people bow now before you're forced to bow later because every knee is gonna bow to the king jesus so we are pleading with people knowing that it's the power of the holy spirit saving people's souls through through us bow the knee now just walk into the to the subduing submit now he ha and he does that by conquering us and praise be to god that he conquers us because he also rules and defends us as lord and king he indeed rules over us isaiah 33 22 looking forward from the old testament to the coming christ says for the lord is our judge the lord is our lawgiver the lord is our king but he will save us. So what we, we all want, the last phrase, save me, yeah, yeah, do that. But wait a minute, you're going to be my judge and lawgiver and king? But that's what kings are supposed to do. Deuteronomy 17. In Deuteronomy 17, God lays out the, the instructions for a king. You know what the one thing that he's supposed to do? The one thing that God says for kings before any king is ever born, which is Moses' day, right before they go in the promised land, he says, this is your one job you write down a copy of the bible that they had at the time so the law first five books and you write down a copy of it in the presence of a priest why do you think they had to do that so the king doesn't edit it <laughs> he doesn't say well you guys go and give me you know five percent and do these things for me you know no you do in the presence of a priest this is going to be an authentic copy and then his, and then he says now you enforce my law amongst the people that's your job and the, none of the perfectly David gets real close, Josiah gets real close, Uzziah, Asa, Hezekiah get relatively close, but none of them do that. But don't we want that? I mean, when I talk to my kids about this kind of thing, I say, it sounds sometimes like we don't like the policemen, right? We don't like the policemen because they're doing these things or whatever, and, but what do you, do you want the policemen to come when somebody's robbing you? Do, you? do you want somebody to come and enforce the law when it's hurting you? And what would it be for me when I'm talking to my kids if you were hitting your sister and I just let it go? I'm the authority. I'm supposed to do that. So, yeah, I want that enforced. Yeah, I want that to be the law of the land. Hey, you know what we really long for? 
I think when every election comes around and it's it's almost like everybody like you just see these demonic activity people acting like crazy people I think what we want is we want a monarchy just innately we want one guy who always makes perfect decisions for everybody is perfectly fair perfectly just perfectly right and always leads in that way subdues evil honors good we want that one person making all those decisions but we can't have that because we're all sinners so we have to have checks and balances that's the best thing that you can get winston churchill said democracy is the worst form of government in the world except for every other form of government in the world because none of them are perfect we want a king like this and jesus that's what he says he is remember back in john 10 that the thief comes in to steal and to kill and destroy but i come to bring life I'm ruling over the sheep as a shepherd. You're following me. You're obeying my commands. You're going where I lead. But it is good. He will save us. That's what we're looking for. And we're never going to find it here on earth. It will only be in Christ. And then lastly, what the catechism said is that he conquers enemies. A good king crushes all threats to his kingdom. Uh, sometimes when we, when we read to the end of Revelation, we get to 21 and 22, talking about heaven have you ever noticed that that the walls of heaven are described like there are walls now i don't know if it's going to be literal walls or metaphorical walls but the concept of walls speaks to us does it not there is everything outside and there's everything inside all evil is walled out all good is walled in because that's what a king does protects us provides for us He's a true king because he conquers the greatest enemies on our behalf. But we can't do it, right? That's what the king's supposed to do. That's why Saul is such a false start for the kingship in Israel. Because when Goliath is at the gate, what is Saul doing? Sitting in the tent, twiddling his thumbs, looking for somebody else to go fight him. I mean, you think about that scenario, that's the most ridiculous scenario of all time. What, what two nations would say, hey, We'll just let two guys fight, and we'll just honor the result of that one fight. You guys fight, and if you, ah, man, you lost for us, now we got to be their slaves. I don't want to do this, but, you know, we got to honor it. It's just, it's just bravado. It's just arrogance and, and pomposity, and the king is trembling in the tent saying, like, oh, anybody want to go out there and do this? So then David comes up, and he's the image of the right king, right? He goes, I like, I'm not going to tolerate this. This is, you see what he's saying? He's blaspheming God. He's going to go, and he fights for the people. And then everybody's like, oh, and then they're all emboldened to go, right? Because the king went first. That's what our king does. He conquers our enemies. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 27. Then, the, then comes the end. So we just jump in the middle of a strain of thinking for Paul, but bear with me. So then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every other authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet the last enemy to be destroyed is death for god has put all things in subjection under his feet that's what we want i think we see that more and more in our politics we just want a strong man don't we you go out there and stick it to the people that I don't like, to the liberals or to the crazy conservatives or to the tree huggers or to whoever it is. You go and do it. That's why I'm voting for you, because you'll go do it. You're strong. You're powerful. But 
Christ is that. Every rule destroys every rule, every authority. And he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy is death. And he conquers it so that in heaven you say, where is the sting of death? Like, what, what, what's the point of this thing again? What, what, your power, your threat is all gone. Well, that's why Jesus says, like, hey, you guys are fearing the wrong things. Don't fear anyone that can kill you. Fear someone who can kill you eternally. That's the only one you should fear. I'll tell you the fear. It's God. None of these other things, they're all conquered foes. They're all subdued by the king. Now, now, doesn't it make sense that we have Jesus as prophet, priest, and king? Aren't you glad he's your prophet, priest, and king? Yeah, I sure am. But we got a little bit of Christology left to go in the catechism, uh, and then it's going to lead to soteriology, which is a big fancy word for the study of how we get saved. Soteriology. Because that makes sense, though, right? You learn that you were super sinful. You learn that there was a redeemer who came, and then you learn, you know, some pretty deep stuff, prophet, priest, and king, and that's how he saves us. Well, I want to know a little bit more about how I'm saved or what goes into that and what are the facets of that. Moving logically through it, just teaching us the basic tenets of the faith. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your Lord, our Lord, your Son, Jesus Christ. And that we uh, can know him and be saved by him. That we have a perfect prophet telling us the clear, unadulterated, non-deluded truth. And we have a priest who said, I'll go in on your behalf. I'll make the sacrifice you could never make. And I'll pray for you and uphold you and serve you. It doesn't make any sense that he would serve us, but yet nevertheless he does. And then to be our king, to one, to, to graciously, to lovingly, gently subdue us, and then to rule over us with all grace and peace and clarity and faithfulness then to conquer all threats that would come to us. A real king who can really do that. Who are we to have that? Who are we to know that? That we get to know so much about what you have done for us through your son Jesus. Lord Jesus, we'll, we'll never be done thanking you, praising you, and worshiping you. And we are going to do everything we can in eternity to, to try we know we'll never be done, and we revel in the fact that we will be engaged in that joyful worship in all of lives and all that you have us do in that forever kingdom as your subjects who are not under the thumb of a tyrant, but in the loving hand of a shepherd forever and ever. We pray all of this in your name.